Chapter 1 of The Ocean of Air, Meteorology for Beginners. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Ocean of Air, Meteorology for Beginners, by Agnes Gibain. The Air in Which We Live. Our Earth has many robes. Closely fitting garments come first, of brown soil or gray rock and green grass, with wide, liquid underskirts of deep blue filling up the spaces between. Outside these coverings, more wonderful still, fragile yet strong, transparent, almost invisible, folded around layer upon layer, or as one might say, veil upon veil, each more gossamer-like than the last. These form Earth's surrounding atmosphere, a substance pervading everything, found everywhere. One may travel from the equator to the poles, one may journey by sea or by land, one may soar high in a balloon or descend deep into a mine. But one can never in this world go to a place where the atmosphere is not. A substance, for air can be felt. Air has weight. Air occupies space. Air, like any other body, can be made hot or cold. Air is composed of particles of substantial matter. A child, not to speak of a grown-up person, opening a box which holds only air will naturally say, nothing here. But something is there, something very definite and real, and of no small possibilities. Those same quiet air particles, actually unfelt by the hand moving gently among them, have strength when stirred into a hurricane blast to uproot huge trees, to sweep away vast buildings, to raise ocean waves upon which mighty ships are tossed helplessly about, like eggs in a boiling cauldron. Air may be felt. The faintest breeze cannot stir without a man becoming conscious of the air particles striking against his face. He cannot ride or run through the air without the same sensation. If he even moves his hand quickly enough to and fro, he is aware of something resisting his hand. Air can be made hot or cold. We all know from experience the difference in our feelings when cold air particles on a frosty winter's day or hot air particles on a sultry summer's day strike against our bodies, either giving over to us of their heat or stealing away some heat from us. Air also has weight and occupies a certain amount of room. Just as a mass of iron or of lead weighs so much, a mass of air has its own particular weight. This means that air, like iron or lead, is subject to Earth's attraction, which is only tantamount to saying again that air is a substance. Nothing which is not a substance can possibly be attracted by a substance. If air is a substance, it must occupy space, it must take up room. It may be very light, very slight, very elastic, and very compressible. Other bodies may pass easily among the air particles, pushing them apart, or squeezing them closer together. Yet space it must have. Air, being distinctly a something, has to be somewhere. Air has a faint bluish tint, which on a sunshiny day becomes in the sky a very pure and deep blue. This tint is not believed to be the natural color of the atmosphere. Were it so, the air would merely act the part of a blue pane of glass, rendering the white light of the sun blue as it reached our eyes. But the blue of the atmosphere is known to be a reflected blue. If reflected, there must be something in the atmosphere to reflect it, and such indeed is the case. Perfectly pure air would doubtless be without color, but perfectly pure air we do not find. The whole atmosphere is full of multitudinous minute specks, so small as to be in themselves invisible, so light as to remain aloft. To the presence of these the blue tint is believed to be due. They scatter the light of the sun and produce the blue effect. A beam of strong white light, 
caused to pass through a liquid which contains a large supply of minute floating particles is affected by them in a like manner. The short blue waves are more abundantly reflected than the long red waves, and so the water seems to be blue. This explanation serves for the deep blue color of the ocean, as well as for the blue of the atmosphere. The whole earth is surrounded by this marvelous air ocean, an ocean of gaseous matter, at least 100 times as deep as the water ocean. At the bottom of the gaseous ocean, we small human creatures crawl about commonly on flat lower levels, the ocean bottom in fact. Sometimes, with much toil and trouble, we climb the little ridges and mounds called mountains, little compared with the depth of the atmosphere, though not little compared with ourselves. The highest mountain peaks of even the vast Himalayas lie low down near the bottom of the ocean of air. Our position is, on a bigger scale, much the same as that of the crabs and crayfishes crawling laboriously about at the bottom of the seawater tanks in the Brighton Aquarium. Only they are in a minute world of water, and we are in a large world of air. They have over their heads only a few feet of the fluid in which they live. We have over our heads many miles of the fluid in which we live. Authors note, air and water are both fluids, though different in kind. Also, it seems probable that they cannot see beyond their confined regions of water, while we have eyesight which can pierce far beyond our wide regions of air. But the very extent of the ocean of air adds to our difficulty in studying its nature. All observations that we can make must be limited by the state of the atmosphere just around ourselves. We can never get out of and beyond the atmosphere so as to see it as a whole. At any time, a slight local fog is enough to put a stop altogether to such observations, beyond the unpleasant experience of the fog itself. Just so a crab, wishing to study the general condition of the water in his tank from one corner of it, would be hampered by the stirring up of a little mud or sand in his own neighborhood. In all study of the Earth's airy envelope, we have to allow for these difficulties, to confess ourselves apt to and not to dogmatize hastily upon questions about which we are not well informed. We can never in this life get beyond the ocean of air, for man and beast cannot live without air. To breathe means life. To cease breathing means death. That which we breathe is the air around us, the ocean of almost invisible gases. It used to be supposed that the atmosphere reached only to a height of about 50 miles above the Earth's surface. We are driven here to conjecture, to some reasoning from certain tokens, and perhaps to a good deal of guessing. Being always imprisoned at the bottom of our oceans, we cannot measure for ourselves how far it extends above. Of late years, the opinion has gained ground that the atmosphere reaches to a height certainly of two or three hundred miles, probably four or five hundred, possibly a good deal more. But the condition of the air far above is different from that of the air in lower levels, where we live and breathe. The higher we ascend, the more thin or rare becomes the air. A less quantity fills a certain space up there than down here. The particles float farther apart from one another. This difference in the density of the air is chiefly due to attraction. Each separate air particle is drawn steadily earthward by the force of gravitation, and that force is stronger on the surface of the earth than at a distance. The closer to the earth, the heavier the pull. The farther from the earth, the less the pull. Besides the actual attraction of the earth drawing the air particles downward, there is the great weight of the whole atmosphere above caused by the same attraction. Miles and miles of air overhead press mightily downward, packing tightly together the lower layers of air near the earth's surface. If thousands of bales of cotton wool were piled into an enormous heap, the upper layers might be light and loose in their make, but the lower ones 
would be squeezed into a very small compass by the pressure of the mass above. Without this pressure of the overlying atmosphere, the air down here would not be nearly so dense as it is, and indeed would not be fitted to supporting life. A man ascending a mountain, or rising in a balloon, leaves heavy layers of air below, and has an ever-lightening weight above, so that the atmosphere around him becomes constantly more thin, more difficult to breathe. This difficulty is felt to a severe extent by those who climb the greater mountains. Within certain limits of height the air is only more light and exhilarating, because a little less dense than on the plain. But as its rarity increases, the breath gets short, the heart's action is quickened, the sense of oppression grows painful. If the ascent could be continued indefinitely, death from suffocation would result. The loftiest mountaintop upon the earth stands only about five and a half miles above sea level. No man has ever yet climbed to such a height, and probably no man ever will. It might not be impossible to exist for a while upon the summit, but one can hardly imagine any man able to reach any such level by climbing. The thinness of the air must long before have so reduced his powers as to render active exertion out of the question. If some means could be devised for bearing him to the summit of Mount Everest, loftiest of the Himalayan range, he would probably, when there, be fit for little more than to lie panting on the ground. Mount Everest has never yet been scaled by men, though ardent mountaineers long ago reached to a level of over 19,000 feet in the Himalayas. This too has been done with the monsters of the Andes chain, once supposed to be the highest mountains in the world, though now known to be far surpassed by the giants of North India. In the beginning of the present century, Humboldt made a vigorous attempt to scale Chimborazo, one of the loftiest of the Andes. He and his party suffered severely from sickness, giddiness, and difficulty in breathing, and the attempt proved a failure. Not till over seventy years later was the ascent actually accomplished by Mr. Wimper. This time, too, the daring climbers were almost incapacitated by weakness, headache, fever, and breathlessness. Yet with desperate resolution, they held on till the summit was gained. After camping for a night at the level above the utmost height of Mont Blanc, they stood at length victorious nearly 20,000 feet above the sea. The ascent of the last thousand feet, we are told, occupied five hours, for a large tract of extraordinarily soft snow had to be crossed, and it was found necessary to flog every yard of it down, and then to crawl over it on all fours. Such exertions, at so great a height, and in so rare an atmosphere, speak well for the indomitable spirit of the travellers. De Saussure, ascending Mont Blanc in August 1787, suffered from extreme distress and exhaustion. On the highest ridge, he had to halt every fifteen or sixteen steps, sometimes even to lie down. And the robust guides with him were in absolute danger of fainting. The same excessive weakness was felt by certain other well-known climbers in 1844. But this experience is by no means universal. The effect of the rarefied air differs extremely with different individuals. Moreover, use greatly modifies, and even to some extent, does away with these effects. In the Andes there are cities full of people at heights of 12,000 or 13,000 feet, and no inconceivable results from the thinner air. Carried upward passively in a balloon, without effort, men have risen higher than the greatest mountains. Mr. Coxwell and Mr. Glacier, in their celebrated aerial voyage of 1862, are believed to have mounted seven miles above the sea. No little peril and suffering were involved, alike from the extreme thinness of the air and from the bitter cold. The wish to fly like a bird is an old wish among men. Perhaps it is a form of the new restlessness, which dislikes to be tied down anywhere. 
Perhaps it partakes of the excelsior feeling which would fain reach regions inaccessible. Tied down, we undoubtedly are to the lower depths of the air-ocean, and inaccessible to the higher regions undoubtedly are to us. Various mad attempts at flying have been made from time to time, more or less disastrous to the makers of them. When, however, near the close of the eighteenth century, a balloon was first made and sent up, men thought that they had at last won mastery of the atmosphere. They did not at once find out that floating is not flying, that the balloon, at its best, is still only an unmanageable despot, a despot over the men whom it carries, and itself a complete prey to the despotic winds and breezes. No means of steering or guiding a balloon has yet been discovered. Authors note, attempts are now being made to construct an airship able to plow its way through the opposing winds. Whether successful or no, time will show. Where the air flows, the balloon goes, fast or slowly, according to the degree of wind. No balloon ever cuts its way through the wind or travels contrary to a breeze. It is simply swept to and fro by the atmosphere, as a cork is borne to and fro by the ocean. The first public balloon ascent took place in June 1783. A fire balloon, made of linen and filled with smoke, went up from near Lyon, and a fervor of excitement followed. Silk balloons filled with hydrogen gas were made next, and the earliest ascent of man followed. A successful, though perilous, attempt to cross the channel took place about two years later. Many aerial journeys were made, some ending well, some fatal to the unfortunate voyagers. As the dangers of these attempts became better known, and as their comparative uselessness for almost all except scientific purposes grew more apparent, public interest in the matter faded. During the early half of the present century, balloons were little thought of, but more lately there has been a revival of interest. Some very remarkable ascents have been made by the famed aeronauts Mr. Coxwell and Mr. Glacier. One or two of these are especially worth mentioning. In their second ascent from Wolverhampton, the balloon sprang rapidly upwards, and in about ten minutes was hidden by a cloud. It reappeared, vanished again, was seen at a height of perhaps three miles, disappeared anew, then gleamed in the far distance as a transparent ball shining moonlike in the sunbeams. The journey lasted from about one o'clock till half-past four, and in that interval the balloon ascended four miles and a half. The voyagers suffered from severe seasickness, though not from bleeding of the nose or singing in the ears, popularly expected on such occasions. They had enough to bear without these additions. Mr. Glacier held manfully to his task, observing and noting down the state of the atmosphere, minute by minute, despite sickness, brain pressure, violent headaches, and a pulse at 108 per minute, all due to the rarity of the air. The view seen from above must indeed have been marvelous. No veil of intervening clouds shut off what lay below, and the earth was visible, not as a rounded surface, but as a seeming hollow, with a distant horizon raising high all around, like the rim of a saucer, or an inverted watch-glass. The intense black-blue of the sky, as seen from great altitudes, is well known to mountain-climbers. Here, however, the blue seemed to be everywhere. A mighty expanse of pure blue filled the vast hollow, reaching to unlimited depths above. An immense shoreless ocean, the ocean of air in which these daring voyagers floated. A boundless sea of ever-changing clouds, piled in mountain masses, and dazzling the eyes with their snowy glare, followed more or less the lines of the horizon, often closing in below to shut off the solid ground. As the balloon rose higher, the pervading blue grew brighter, and earthly sounds waxed faint. 
One mile high, human voices might still be heard, raised in a shout. Two miles high, only a dog's sharp bark could be distinguished. Since a balloon moves with the moving air, there are no jars or jolts, no struggles to advance, as with a ship at sea. Nothing resists its passage. The movements of a balloon seem, indeed, to be characterized by a singular quietness so far as regards the voyager's sensations. When it first rises, the earth appears to drop away. When it descends, the earth appears to rise. There is little consciousness of motion. This delusion was quaintly expressed by a certain American aeronaut. He was, he says, preparing to come down gently when the earth bounced up against the bottom of his car. A more terse description could scarcely be offered. The most remarkable ascent known was that of Mr. Glacier and Mr. Coxwell on the 5th of September, 1862, when they rose seven miles. If we remember that Mount Everest of the Himalayas is nearly twice the height of Mont Blanc, and that the voyagers were floating a mile and a half higher than the height of Mount Everest's topmost peak, we shall better imagine the perils of this excursion. No human beings have ever ascended further. The marvel was that they returned to earth alive. In those lofty regions of air-ocean, no living creatures exist. The voyagers pass through the boundless silent solitudes, silent except for the hurried beating of their own hearts, the sound of their own panting breath, and the sharp ticking of their watches, and the clang of the valve door. On leaving Earth, the thermometer stood at 59 degrees. Soon afterward, the balloon passed through masses of clouds, thousands of feet in depth, then came out into dazzling sunshine, with a deep blue sky above, and cloudless mountain masses of billowy cloud below. As they rose, they released at intervals a captive pigeon. One set free at a height of nearly five miles fell downward like a stone. Of two others taken higher, one died of the cold, and the other was stupefied. When they reached five miles above the sea, the temperature was below zero. Still upward, further upward, rose the resolute pair. Then, blinding darkness and insensibility seized Mr. Glacier. Had he been alone, he would never have revived. With no one to open the valve, the balloon must have carried him onward into yet higher and deathlier regions, where for a lack of air he would have perished. Even then Mr. Coxwell did not at once give in, but he was strictly on the watch. At the seven miles level, a tremendous height, he too felt signs of failing consciousness. In a few minutes more all would have been over with them both, and at last he yielded. It was indeed time that he should. His hands were powerless to act, but he seized the valve rope in his teeth and pulled. The gas rushed out. The balloon steadily sank. Both lives were saved, and a mighty feat had been accomplished. Yes, a mighty feat, and at a tremendous height, in consideration of human powers. Seven miles high would seem to be the outside limit at which animals generally can exist, even for a short time. Birds may be, to some extent, an exception. Certain birds are believed to soar occasionally two or three miles higher still. But what are seven miles, what are even ten miles, compared with the four or five hundred miles of atmosphere depth? With all our utmost efforts, we and the birds still find ourselves only able to creep and flutter on or near the floor of the ocean of air. End of chapter 1